When we think about our golden years, we think we'll live the rest of our days in our own home. But what if that's not possible? Have you had conversations with your family about your wishes for your final years? What if something happens and what you wanted is no longer an option? What if the option you decided on no longer fits your needs the way you'd like? This is a co-hosted podcast conversation about what you should consider when you start to have those difficult conversations about end of life wishes. We focus on nursing homes, assisted living, and memory care living residences, the pros, the cons, and many of the things you might wanna consider when you start to have these conversations about how you will live out your final years in peace, harmony, and being well cared for. This episode is brought to you by Family History Film. Visit myfamilyhistoryfilm.com to find out how they can preserve your family memories in a fascinating documentary film. Welcome to Fading Memories, a supportive podcast for those caring for a loved one with memory loss. Before we get into the show, I want to encourage you to check out our fully revamped website. We have articles, recipes, links to all of my social media accounts, and more. You'll find the link in the show notes, and I really hope you check it out and let me know what you think. With me today on the podcast, we're doing something a little special. We're co-hosting. Ryan McEnough is with me. He has the Caregiver Toolkit podcast, and he's also a private home care business. So thanks for joining me, Ryan. Yeah, no problem. Just a correction. It's the Caregiver's Toolbox. That's toolbox. toolbox. That's the, <laughs> the, the, the podcast name. You know, I can either get a name. I always get something wrong with names. My brain and names do not do not work well together. If that's the worst <laughs> thing that happens to me today, I'm doing pretty good. Oh, that's a good thing. So we're going to discuss whether or not we want to leave our loved ones in a nursing home, maybe touch on, on what to do when we have a situation like a big flu outbreak in a memory care, assisted living, nursing home community kind of deal since we're a lot of people are dealing with you know my i can't go see my loved one in the memory care or the nursing home because covid's got everything shut down you know a lot of people understandably are not happy about that and some people are like i'm gonna yank my family member out and i think that that's a decision that needs a lot more thought process so i think that's what we're talking about today <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, I I do private home care services. So I should say up front, you know, there might be some bias here in what you should be doing. But but all joking aside, I, I, I don't know, you know, what I've been seeing in the last six to eight weeks is everybody that's in senior care is hurting on some level. Some are worse than others. My business is down. Assisted livings aren't taking people in. Nursing homes are taking very few people in. Some everybody's a little bit different. So, um, you know, while it might benefit me in some aspects for people to leave nursing homes or assisted livings, um, yeah, I don't think it's going to be an overwhelming, uh, overwhelming success because a lot of people in my, I imagine a lot of people who have either lost their jobs or been furloughed or have seen their hours reduced well, then they can uh, spend more time with their loved ones being a family caregiver. So there's certainly two sides to that coin. 
Well, that kind of brings up my my reasoning for thinking that it should be a a very well thought out decision, and it's obviously one that would have been nice if we'd all thought about, you know, before twenty twenty happened. <laughs> but of course, that's not how we we usually do things. My mom was in a memory care, and she was there predominantly because my dad died. I had just turned 50. My sister is four and a half years younger. She has school-age kids. We all still work. And I honestly didn't feel that mom would get the stimulation that she needed if she was at my house. If she was at my house, she would have needed she would have needed somebody to come in and help us take care of her. And I just, I just didn't see it as being the best situation overall for all of us. And, and it was kind of sprung on me. I was told, Oh, well, you know, your dad thinks your mom's going to come live with you. I was like, <laughs> no conversation on that one. Okay, great. A couple of years ago, her, the community she lived in the assisted living um, side had a huge flu outbreak. I mean, huge. They had to shut down the dining room, deliver meals to the residents in their apartments, which affected the memory care. This time around, it's worse because now there's not visitors coming in. While my mom was on hospice, there was the hospice people were stretched thin and they were not there as often as they originally had told me that they would be, which, you know, I, that, that's not a complaint. It's just the fact of life. And one of the things when we cleaned out mom's room, one of the things the staff was telling me is that because the residents aren't going out with family members, family members are not coming in, it's harder for them to keep them engaged in participating in activities. So even though they're in the community, they've got all the services there, it's still not ideal. And it's just, I thought that was very interesting. So you know, you get a lot of pros and cons on both sides. And I've actually been thinking about this situation because a lot of people are like, I don't know, should I take my mom out of the memory care? And a nursing home is even a bigger deal because that's, you know, that's medical care. So I don't know. What are you, what are your thoughts on this? I think, um, I think, that, you know, the, the, there's no magic bullet and there's no right answer and it all depends. Um, you know, in, I'm in Massachusetts. I'm in the greater Boston area. We're in a hot spot right now. Um, a report just came out in the Boston Globe yesterday that says one in five, 20% of nursing homes in Boston or in Massachusetts, excuse me, has had over 20 COVID-related deaths. Um, there are oh dozens of nursing homes that have over 30 and 40 deaths that have occurred in them, and they've run the gamut from large corporations that own hundreds of nursing homes to family mom and pop to government uh, uh owned, for lack of a better word, government-funded nursing homes. So there doesn't seem to be much of a rhyme or a reason for this. So in Boston, you're probably going to get, if, if your loved one's in Boston and you can take somebody, your parent, back into the home for, for a period of time without there being medical consequences to that, I guess my answer would be yes. If you're in another part of the country, whether it's you know, Montana or down in Florida, they seem to be having a better, a better go at this, Texas or wherever it is, and you're having less of a, uh, uh, an issue with nursing homes, then my answer would probably be no. 
Um, you know, the big question is, is, is you, you've mentioned nursing homes and then there's memory care and there's assisted livings. Well, like you said, you know, if somebody's in a, uh, a nursing home, are, there, either are they there for a medical reason or are they there for dementia? Or is it, is, it, is it something in between? Is it even possible to bring mom or dad home? That's the first big question. And then if it's possible, the second question is, should you do it? And I think that term is really determined on the, the set of circumstances of where you're located and if you can handle that. Or do you have a good enough relationship with mom or dad to be with them 24 hours a day? Or is the, de is the dementia that they have a little bit more, uh, is, that, is that combative? Is it something that you can even deal with? Is it something where you're gonna end up needing to bring private home care caregivers into the home where you're basically in the same situation as you were maybe in a nursing home, but it's a little bit safer. So there's a lot of moving parts on answering that question. But from what I'm seeing with nursing homes in the Boston area, yeah, my answer would be yes. Maybe in your part of the, the neck of the woods out in California, that the answer would be no. Well, I don't know about nursing homes. I'm in the San Francisco Bay Area, way out in the far-flung part of the suburbs. You know, basically out here in the in the <laughs> the very tail end of the Bay Area. And I'm going to give a shout out to MBK Senior Living because they are the corporation that runs the community my mom lived in, and they have had no no outbreak, no deaths. I don't. Well, I know how they did it. They kicked us all out. <laughs> which was a little bit of a challenge in the beginning, but I understood their reasoning. But when we cleaned out mom's room, they said, yep, nobody's gotten it. There was one employee they thought had tested positive, but that was a false positive. So, you know, they tested positive. They were, you know, basically kicked off the property until they self-quarantined, came back with a negative test result. So that was all really good. But that's really, you know, like I said earlier, it's been a real challenge for them. They're not letting people in. They're not moving people in. Uh, my mom died May, March 31st, and we cleaned out her room like two weeks ago, so middle of May, which I was surprised because they still don't want people coming in. Um, you know, it's just, they did a great job, but I'm sure that they're very stressed. So I don't, I don't know. My mom was combative, and until she broke her leg, she still walked and talked like somebody in the later middle stage of Alzheimer's. But once she broke her leg, then she was bed bound and she refused physical therapy. So she needed somebody that could be there all the time. I mean, and it just, the end came because she didn't want them to feed her and she didn't want help. And oh, it was just, it wasn't good. So I never considered moving her out. I also didn't think she was going to leave us. I thought she'd recover. So there was a lot of stuff going on the beginning of March, the middle of March, that removing her from the, where she lived was never, ever a consideration because I can only imagine the confusion. That's a huge thing is upending their entire, you know, living situation to me is, that's something you have to really consider because it's extremely stressful. And if you've got a broken brain, I can only imagine. We moved at the beginning of this year, so I'm really familiar with the stress of moving. And certainly with somebody with dementia, you know, they, every, every uh, diagnosis is a little bit different and unique to an individual, but in general, you, changing 
your surroundings is can be very traumatic and it can take weeks for somebody to get into their their back to their normal self or um, adjust to that so it can certainly be stressful and I certain and I know you know, when this was all starting to happen, the people I spoke to, you know, whether it was financial advisors, whether it was friends, whether it was family, whether it was other people in the senior care community, uh, we were all maybe naively hoping that this was going to be a two week to a four week thing, right? Like, oh, this is going to blow over, you know, like, it's going to be bad for I think as a country, we were kind of all like a lot of us were all kind of like, hoping that this thing was just going to kind of be like that scare with a bullet, right? We're like, five mm-hmm. people got it. And then it just kind of went away. You know, it just just the news never reported on it. You know, when when I remember when I was like, Oh, my God, Ebola is going to be everywhere. And we're all going to die. Um, and this ended up being the one right, this was the one that 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 became a disaster. And, you know, we're at this point in time where we're still trying to figure out how widespread it is. We're still trying to figure out what the actual death rate of this thing is. We thought it was going to be 5%. Now it might be a half a percent. Um, it could be somewhere in between, you know, you, it all depends on what data you look at. And so, you know, my, the reason I bring this up and, it, and it's, it's a valid point of what you, you said is that there were probably a lot of people that were sitting there going like, why are we going to need to bring mom or dad home? It's only going to be for two or three weeks. And now two or three weeks is, is turned into 24 months possibly, you know? <laughs> and, and so the other thing that a lot of people are going to start thinking about very quickly is senior loneliness and isolation and being alone in a room um, completely by yourself, basically 24 hours a day, except when people come in to bring you your meals or maybe to do some some uh, light personal care. And then the rest of the time, you know, you're expected to be self-sufficient in your own room if you're in a in an assisted living or if you're in a nursing home, it might be you two people to a room, but you don't get to choose your 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 roommate. And so, you know, I've done podcasts on how detrimental that um, being completely alone is. Um, we're already seeing it in younger, the younger population, and by younger, I mean, people that aren't in nursing homes, you know, that people are isolating, and people are going a little crazy, and they're going stir crazy, and they're getting cabin fever. And so what's that going to look like to, uh, you know, to, to seniors who, you know, for them, one day feels like a week and one week feels like a month and one month feels like six months, you know, and they haven't seen loved ones and they're not lucky enough to be on the first, the first uh, story or the ground floor where they can see their loved ones through a window. Maybe they're on the third or fourth floor and then all of a sudden they're really alone and they, they can't see out the window. And I think that's going to be a, another consideration. Obviously, it's better to be lonely than to be dead. But you know, being lonely can have its own negative consequences that can lead to death. And it can lead to that that mental fatigue where people want to give up, they start to decline quicker, and they could go on to hospice and inevitably pass away because of that isolation. So there are a lot of moving parts that we didn't really expect to, to see with all of this that, uh, you know, that is important to think about. Like, if your loved one is a very social butterfly, maybe bringing them home is really important to make sure that they get that social interaction with people that they, 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 uh, they know, hopefully. Yeah, when we cleaned out mom's room, we were in the memory care and we also were over in the assisted living where the offices are. And they were still doing they were playing, some of the ladies were playing bingo. This was on the assisted living side. And 
it was a little bit sad because they were all at separate little small tables. So they were at least participating in activity and they were sort of together. It was definitely better than being isolated in their apartments. And I'm trying to think, I don't know. I don't know of any assisted living communities in my general area that are more than three stories. All the ones in my town are two. Mom's was two. Memory care is one was the ground floor. But obviously in other cities, there's taller ones, but all out here, they're only one or two or three stories max. And there's issues with window visits, not for seniors living in assisted living, but seniors in memory care might not understand why you can't come in or they can't go out and you might trigger the desire for them to leave or what is it, elopement syndrome, which is a really strange term, but that's better than trying to escape is not a very nice term. That's exactly why that word was that. That is the equivalent of a, a waste management manager versus, you know, a janitor or something like that. It's, it's a nice way to say that somebody escaped and is on the run and, and uh, we don't know where they are. <laughs> yeah. Well, you wouldn't want to go and visit your mom through a window and then have her give the staff a hard time because she wants you to come in or she wants to go out or i could just see a lot of problems with that predominantly with memory care the memory care obviously they weren't confined to their rooms because i'm not even sure that would be doable without locking the doors which that doesn't sound at all pleasant for anybody so i'm glad they didn't do that but i think that's why they basically said it was like march 16th they were like nope nobody's coming in which was abrupt. I mean, we went from just going in and out. I mean, we were supposed to sign in, but I don't know that anybody ever did. And then we had to go through the front, the main entrance and have temperature check and sign in. And it was all very formal. We, I did that a couple times at, right after she came out of the hospital. And then it was, it was, I mean, they had sawhorses and caution tape in front of the door. It was like, you are not coming to this door. <laughs> go away. Was, it was very clear that their intention was they didn't want people there. And like I said a minute ago, they did a great job because they've had no issues. And there's, there's probably at least 300 residents. There's probably more, but I know, I know the memory care is not full. So the other flip side of this coin, I know people caring for their spouse or their parent at home are having a hell of a time because the adult social programs are shut down and having in, you know, there's their regular in-home caregivers has been hit and miss. One friend of mine, their VA caregiver, the caregiver's sister got sick. So the caregiver had to self-quarantine for two weeks, which meant my friend and her dad did not have that caregiver for two weeks. And it, it just like every, routine that they had in place just was imploded. She went from having help seven days a week to having help. She was lucky if she got seven hours a week and she feels he's declining more quickly, which I've heard a lot of. And, you know, she's at the end of her rope. So it's like, I'm not sure there is an answer to this question, but my thought was if you know that you're going to have to take care of your loved one at home, or you're going to put them in an assisted living memory care community, 
there's a lot of things you should think about that we probably weren't aware of prior to this lovely pandemic. Like, what would you do if the caregivers can't come in? What do you do if you're sick and the caregivers can't come in because you're sick? Well, how do you guys handle stuff like that since you do in-home care? Yeah, so so that that's actually a question that we try to address um, every single time we have an introductory meeting or an exploratory meeting with a prospective client. Um, it is it is um, what happens when you have what we call as a a call out. Um, or even worse, uh, no call, no show. And so, you know, in those circumstances, it's really, it really um, is about the relationship the agency has with the caregivers. And, um, you know, the problem that you have, at least in Massachusetts, is that there's very little regulation with private home care. Um, anybody with a couple thousand bucks can make a website, make some brochures, hire a couple people, and all of a sudden they're a private agency. And so, you know, one of the issues is that these caregivers are treated as, as, as kind of a commodity, their bodies rather than individuals. And what I mean by that is when you look at, there are some agencies that look at caregivers as that they're all the same. Um, and that's a problem because they aren't all the same. You have your A's, your B's, your C's and D's, just like any industry with any employers and, and employees. And so to answer your question, what that really comes down to is you need to have that good relationship with caregivers to say, hey, if you're in a jam, if you have an emergency, just call us. You're not going to get screamed at. You're not going to get um, hours taken away or anything like that. You, we, we'd rather know up front that there's a problem and we can address it than find out an hour into when you were supposed to be to your shift that you're not there. And so at the end of the day, what we do is it's, it's, it's um, an area where I think there's a problem with private home care is that they don't see the forest through the trees. And what I say to people is come hell or high water, we're going to get somebody to go out to that to, to your case. Now, there's always different circumstances where maybe it's a situation where, where it's companionship and it's not absolutely needed and we can make a switch to the next day and, and it's no big deal. But in the circumstances where we are absolutely needed there, um, that's where you or have to be willing to pay whatever it costs to get a caregiver to go out there and into an emergency to provide that safety net. And the, the other thing that we've done is we our home health aid supervisor is a caregiver. So she, her job is to be a bit of a jack of all trades where she can help out with scheduling, she can help out with office admin, but she can also go out and, and drop off supplies. And of course, she can be the emergency backup if we need somebody to go out there. So if we have a case that starts at 8 a.m. and we get the call at 7.30, we'll send out our home health aid supervisor to cover for the two or three or four hours or however long it takes to find a replacement for somebody to go out there for a permanent um, replacement for that shift so that the family members know that mom isn't just sitting there for three hours or two hours alone until we find somebody. So that's really in my view, it's one of those, those it's, a, it's a trust thing. And when people um, call up, and it happens a lot more often than, than I realized when I got into this industry, hey, sorry, Jennifer, nobody's showing up for your shift today. We'll be there tomorrow. You know, this is now your problem. Figure it out. That breaks down trust with your 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 client who's paying your bills and is your customer, and it it 
ruins trust with your employees. And it's just, it's just a bad way of doing business. And so I've always felt that that has to be avoided at all costs. So if I have to pay somebody $50 an hour to go out and cover a shift, I've got to pay somebody $50 an hour to go out and cover the shift. It's a non-negotiable um, scenario. Somebody has to go out there one way or another. So have you had any caregivers that have had to isolate because they've been um, exposed or they've had a family member exposed? Yep, absolutely we have. And yeah. and so what we've done in those scenarios is, is again, it's, it's kind of right now is where you see the good agencies from the bad agencies and we've paid those caregivers to self-isolate and say, hey, listen, we're not going to let you lose out on money just because you've got this this disease or you think you might have gotten this disease, but um, but you're going into a scenario where um, it's a high risk, like an assisted living or something like that. Um, what we've done as much as possible and what we've done completely is that if you're working into assisted living, you're only working at that job. You're not working at other jobs where they, they work in an assisted living, then they go to somebody's home. We've limited those jobs. And then the other thing that we've done is we've limited the amount of caregivers that are working on a case. So what, one of the issues that people are finding is that, hey, if you go to a nursing home, your mom's in a nursing home and an assisted living, and you're thinking of pulling them back home, but you're still going to need care. Well, what we've been doing is we've been just having the caregiver go into overtime and working that into the cost and the wages and being able to provide a caregiver you know, for 50 or 60 hours out of the week rather than only 40 hours out of the week. And then that way it's limiting the amount of different people that are going into a home. And so that way, then the caregivers are happy because one, they're not going to different locations. They have one steady job at one place. And then the families are happy because they have one caregiver that's coming in and they're not going to a bunch of different facilities and different homes. One of the reasons why I think that this crisis has turned into a crisis in the Boston area and in other areas is that hospitals, nursing homes, assisted livings, uh, VNAs, hospices, and private agencies are all pulling from the same pool of employment and, and, and caregivers. And those caregivers can be working at two or three different jobs at one time to get 80 hours a week. And so since we, um, we can go into overtime, but care, but clients aren't going to pay overtime prices. We can only have caregivers working up to 40 hours a week, and then we can't employ them anymore. Then they go to another agency or a VNA or an assisted living, and then they work there. So you have these caregivers that are working at different locations at different times. What we've seen in the Boston area recently is that caregivers are just leaving the workforce totally. Uh, most agencies I've spoken with and a lot of assisted livings and nursing homes are, are seeing massive reductions in their staff, 20 to 40%. So if you're in a nursing home or you're in a assisted living and you're, you have a ratio, you know, they have ratios that they hit. So if they're at hundred percent occupancy, they need X amount of caregivers. If they go down to 80%, they need X minus that 20%. So they're still at the same ratios, or they were before all these deaths were occurring, and they were still only able to be staffed at 70% or whatever that number was. So there was a big issue. There's still a big issue of these caregivers that are going into these, these homes or, excuse me, into these facilities or communities, and they're overworked and they're burned out and they're, they're doing God's work. They're, they're the ones that are doing the hardest work there is, 
but they're, there's only so much they can do before they're going to crack. And that's the issue that we're, we're having where I don't blame caregivers for sitting on the sideline, but it's showing the issue we have. We already had an issue with caregiver shortages. Now we have a, a crisis of a magnitude that, that nobody has an answer for right now, and it's a, it's a big problem. So that kind of, uh, hopefully that answers a lot of the questions and a lot of the difficulties that we're seeing. Well, it gives me the, the question popped into my head. If you like the sit, see, we ended up having in-home care for my parents when my dad was on hospice. So this was a little over three years ago. And of course I had to, I had to literally hire a home agency within 24 hours because the hospital was like, we're done with him. Come get him. I'm like, Oh, hell no. <laughs> we're not ready over here. Cause you told me he wasn't coming out. Now you're telling me he's coming out. I hate the hospital system. So fortunately I interviewed three and I, I've got very lucky cause I went with gut instinct again, which is how I picked my mom's memory care community. <laughs> I was very blessed. I guess I have a good gut because I had, didn't have really any issues with the, home care agency. There was one gal, my dad was diabetic and he had his donated kidney was failing. And so he got the, the, is it the lymphedema? I mean, his legs were really swollen and then this is going to be gross, but basically it just, the fluid leaks out of the legs. So I'm hoping you guys aren't eating. One gal refused to deal with it. So I'm like, okay, don't come back. Fortunately, I didn't have to tell her. I just told the manager. I'm like, if she can't deal with it, then she don't need to come back. And then there was one gal that did the overnight shift. I'm not really sure what she did. It should have been really easy because my parents were asleep. You know, and they slept pretty well. And they just, she just had to make sure my dad didn't fall because he was on. I had somewhat combative parents both times. He, he didn't think he needed help. He didn't want these ladies helping him, which I understand. And so it, it was a fairly, simple job except for his attitude was kind of crappy so she was about to get the boot and then he passed away and then mom went into memory care <laughs> it was just like it was just insane but the some of the things that i wish i had known were you know like what you're telling me you know like was there some other options that maybe wouldn't have required three different caregivers every day and we had the same caregivers on the same days so that, you know, it, it wasn't like we had just random people all the time, but what should somebody consider if they've got an elderly parent or you've got a spouse that's got a chronic illness and you may end up needing in-home care? Because I don't know how, I, I say this a lot, 70% of us are going to need care before we die. So, <laughs> so it's not a good thing for people who are going to need care in the near future. And hopefully this problem, this crisis of, availability of caregivers improves as you and I get older, but what should people consider so that they're not making decisions in a panic like I had to do? Because trust me, you don't want to have to rely on your gut. That's not always a great feeling. I mean, that's the whole reason I made my podcast, right? I mean, I was, I was going to Council on Agings to try to inform people on developing a plan and very few people were showing up. And I think that this medium that we're doing allows, as I said in, in the pre kind of uh, call we did a couple of days ago, you can bring the horse to water, you can't make them drink. Um, 
One of the things that I've always thought is important, I think I recommend it, is, is kind of the five wishes program. Um, I've always thought that that's a good recommendation and it's basically, um, it goes through five questions on what you want to happen as, as, as you start to decline. Um, it, it's a bit more around actual like kind of passing away, but at least it starts that process of answering the questions. And then, you know, the, the, your, your example and your experience is, is, is very typical, unfortunately, where people somehow there's some miscommunication with a hospital or maybe the hospital doesn't communicate and they find out usually on a Friday around three o'clock, nothing good ever happens in, in healthcare. You find out there's a discharge going on and you need services immediately. And, and listen, we don't like it any more than you do because the more time we have to prepare, the better we can find a match for you and we're not rushing to find somebody immediately. Um, so I think the, 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 the first step is having the conversation with mom or dad and what you want to happen when this decline occurs. Because, you know, sometimes families really push their parents into something that they may not, they may not want. And, and there's a saying in our industries that, that everybody has the right to fail. And if somebody doesn't want something, they have that right to say no, even if it might be detrimental to their, their long-term outcome. And it's not a fun thing to say, but it's still a choice that they get to make. And so obviously that becomes much more difficult when you're dealing with memory issues. But if somebody's still sharp and their body's failing them and not their mind, they have, in my opinion at least, that right to make that decision on what they want to do. And if that ends up being a broken hip and leads to an infection and then it leads to their untimely death, as horrible as that is to say, it's their choice. So having that conversation with mom or dad is really important. I've had that with my dad. I didn't need to have that with my mom because she got cancer suddenly and passed away within three or four months. Um, but you know, with, with my dad, we've had that conversation on what you want to happen in these certain scenarios and, and that's important. The other thing you gotta look at are the finances. What is available to somebody to be able to, to provide that if you don't have money, I'm not going to be able to help you out because we do private home care. Assisted livings aren't going to work for you because they get paid privately as well. And so um, are you going to need to sign up for Medicaid? Are you going to need to have that seven-year look-back period? Or is it a five-year look-back period on Medicaid if you're going to go into the long-term side of nursing homes? Or are you going to try to do this on your own? Um, so there's a, there's a lot of options and I see it every day where people get the fire hose of information. I call it, it's just like walking into a, 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 a literally the fire hoses that they put out buildings with. And it's like, well, we're going to give you about uh, a four year degree in, in Medicare and CMS and every senior care in about 30 seconds, figure it out. And it's, 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 and, and I try to be fair. It, there's definitely some fault to the system is certainly broken in areas, but there's also the fault of family members as well, where nobody wants to talk about these really difficult conversations a lot either because, but we all jokingly say to each other, death and taxes, it's death and taxes guaranteed in life, but nobody wants, like you, you said, hey, 70% of us are going to need care, but somehow everybody internalizes, well, I'm going to be the 30% that doesn't, so I don't need to talk about and it's a difficult conversation to have without a doubt well it's a conversation my dad pretty much skipped so this was about four years ago this month i decided to try flying all over the handlebars of my bicycle and see what slamming into the pavement was like that wasn't cool 
And so I had my first broken, my only broken bone at 49 and a half. So I was dealing with that. I had to have surgery to fix it. And he's talking about, well, I got to get my garage cleaned out because, you know, I got to prepare for the end. Well, you know, I was kind of dealing with my own thing, but I was listening to him. And, but I didn't listen between the lines because what he was not saying was my donated kidney is failing. And we all knew he did not want to go back on dialysis. And I was, I totally understood that. What he didn't say was, I'm probably going to need some help. He just assumed he'd die within a two week period. And then I don't know what the hell he thought would happen because my mom would have thought he was asleep. So that would have been pretty ugly. His friend would have probably come over and found him or the neighbor or, you know, one of us daughters. I just, I still get angry with him when I think about that. Cause it's like, dude, like really, <laughs> what did you think was going to happen if you died within two weeks? And he didn't, he came home from hospice on January 12th and he died March 2nd. So it took two months. It's like crazy. So yeah, nobody likes to have that conversation. I have had the conversation with my family there's only the three of us so you know there's not there's not a lot of backup you know like there's my daughter she could help her dad if i needed care but i've basically said you know well i've actually said when i get to a certain point where i cannot assist in my own care it's time for the permanent night night pill which i know is not legal <laughs> hopefully maybe someday you can i as a in my right mind kind of person i could go and do a trust and all of the legal documents and also attach to it like whatever you'd need from a doctor psychologist that says yes this person is sane and their brain is fine they can make this decision because oh, you know my mom lived for with alzheimer's for 20 years and she, i think she only is gone now because she broke her leg and her body was like up oh, <laughs> i'm done with this crap she did pick a really good time to go though, because I can't imagine not being able to go and see her still after what has it been almost three yeah. months? Well, I mean, a couple points is one, most people don't realize that they think I'm guessing maybe your dad thought this as well. Oh, these two weeks, I'll go on hospice, they'll take care of everything, and then I'm done. And even if that wasn't the case with your dad, most people think that hospice, once you're on hospice, everything's taken care of. And that couldn't be further from the truth on what um, services you get and you know as uh, the entitlements if, and 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 CMS gets more and more stressed with money they keep cutting back on those services that they're willing to reimburse for um, so you don't get all these services with with hospice as you think and we get a lot of referrals from hospice companies that say hey this family didn't didn't realize that they don't get all this this care they thought so um, they don't have 24 24 hour hospice care yeah and and to your point I completely agree we treat our animals our dogs and our cats with more um, dignity in death than we do our own our own um, family and our own neighbor um, I can't tell you how many how, and I think I, I think I get this a little bit more because I'm in private home care and by the time they get to hospice they feel guilty about this feeling because they nobody realizes that there's a, a rainbow of emotions when you're dealing with the, the the loss of your family members but there are a lot of people that that just say they you know, they in frustration, I wish mom would just die. And they don't mean that they want 
some horrible death, but they know that mom has been gone for a pretty long period of time. And, and the quote I heard from somebody that was, was, was heart wrenching was mom died years ago. I've been taking care of the body. And, and so some, some uh, dementia experts may vehemently disagree with that, that mom might be in there somewhere. But the conversations that we have with our parents, and I think you and I sound like we're in the same boat, where once I am a burden on my family and I am causing more pain than I am providing more happiness, give me the night-night pills. Like, let's get this, the, you know, my mom was the same way with cancer. Like, get me the hell out of here. This cancer is in my bones. It is breaking my bones internally. Let's end this. And you couldn't end it because it wasn't legally allowed. And I know that I have family members without naming names that have a secret stash of pills they've been collecting for the last 10 years because they say, hey, listen, I'm keeping all those Vicodins and Percocets and Oxycodones for when I get that diagnosis and it becomes unbearable and let's just pull the plug and get this over with because you know you're not you're 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 not going to get treated as humanely as you do with bringing your dog to a vet petting them and saying goodbye and then they fall asleep and it's over with and it's a lot more i saw it with my mom and i saw her last i i saw my mom's last image in my brain and it wasn't a pretty one and it would have been much more dignified to be able to inject her with whatever she falls asleep a sleeping agent and then a and then a lack of a better term death agent whatever it is and then it's over with and that's something that should be if we have a a right to life we should have a right to a dignified death and that would certainly negatively impact my business uh, because (laughs) i care for people with dementia you know we were talking about assisted livings i look at assisted livings as you have the dementia unit and then you have the people that just won't admit that they're in the dementia unit which is the traditional unit because there's so much memory issues in the traditional unit as well not everybody but you know there are a lot of people that we provided care for that refused to go downstairs where the crazy people were and mom and dad were like you have dementia too, but they weren't willing to admit it and they needed 24 hour care. And that's how we, we, you know, had services that way. Um, so, I mean, to your, to your point, I, I completely agree in it, in it and there need to be some changes around that. And it's, it's, it's very difficult because, you know, when we look at this COVID COVID-19, you know, the, it's it's becoming more and more clear that a lot of people that are becoming uh, that are susceptible to this and have died from this are people that are have comorbidities comorbidities that a lot of them have dementia where they're walking around touching feeling touching their face you know you know what it's like they're down you can't lock them in their room it's illegal in Massachusetts to do that even though in this scenario it would be the best thing for them because then they wouldn't be mingling with other people but since you can't do that and that's not allowed then you know they interacted and then in my from what i understand it gets in through people coming in and out of the building and then it it hit the dementia unit first because everybody's wandering and walking around and then staffing didn't know that they were asymptomatic and they went from the nurse the dementia unit and they went into traditional and and then it spread and then once it's in there it's becoming really difficult to get it out and it's super scary once it's in there, even after you think, all right, we've had a week and things are getting better, boom, two more people get COVID. And then you're like, we're back in it again. So it's it's not easy whatsoever. Yeah, they keep saying that it may never go away completely, even with a vaccine, which that's a thrilling thought. Thanks, thanks, 
medical or science science people that creeps me out but i laughed because well to back up one step my grand my maternal grandfather also died from bone cancer so i know how horrible that is and at one point my mom said this was in he died in 99 my mom said you know he's in pain can we give him more morphine and they said no they were afraid he'd get addicted like just process that one and i think my mom severely considered overdosing him I'm, i don't know if she i i suspect because i she and i are think a lot alike my i was more like my dad but i think she probably thought about it a lot because he was i mean my uncle gave him just a gentle shoulder hug and cracked a bone because they're so brittle which obviously you understand but then you were talking about people with dementia my mom would pick up crap off the floor and uh, we'd go i'd take her places prior to most well up until the end of 99 or 99 <laughs> 2019 having a flashback here i would take her out we'd go to the park we'd watch kids in the you know i'm in northern california so we don't get weather like you do but you know we it does get cold and windy and foggy and blech so we'd go to the library or i would take her to the fabric store or to you know like pete's or starbucks or something and i swear if there was something on the floor she'd bend over and pick it up and ask me is this yours and there were times it's like please don't pick that i don't know what that is where it's been no please don't hand it to me oh yuck you know and then you have to go get a clerk to unlock the bathroom and then you got to talk them into washing their hands it's like i don't need this crap <laughs> so the very the let's see i'm trying to remember i think we mostly stayed in the community january february of 2020 which looking back i mean obviously it was probably safer but you know sometimes i kind of feel a little guilty that we didn't go and do fun things but she was getting really challenging and i didn't want her to be combative and become a problem in a public place so that was that was the end with her but oh yeah she would pick stuff up off the floor and it's like tissues and trash and it was like i was always afraid of what she'd hand me <laughs> yeah and for so what, oh, and for people that ahead. don't know i mean there 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 are people that like a dementia unit usually or the modern ones are in some type of circular or square design that allows people to just endlessly wander and and not everybody but people will sit there and they will touch every single doorknob they will touch every single um woodwork anything any molding anything like that and they will do it for hours on end and we've we've i've been in, i've seen it um so it's 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 a, a situation where it was like a perfect storm for this virus to to unfortunately spread but i'll, I'll let you continue though well i'm thinking what should somebody like when you know my mom broke her leg and the option was either to do surgery to repair it or not and the i made the decision that she was going to need physical therapy one way or the other so i said let's see how she handles physical therapy before we make a decision on the surgery because i know you know in late stage alzheimer's you give somebody anesthesia and you are just asking for god knows what so she was already combative i didn't need to play russian roulette with her brain with anesthesia and the surgeon didn't push me to do surgery so that kind of gave me the hint that he didn't think it was such a great idea and she absolutely like swatted the 
physical therapist guy away like he was you know because she was in her bed so that's kind of awkward and strange i understand but her reaction to him was pretty nasty so obviously that wasn't you know surgery would have just been a complete waste but the hospital i don't know where they get their information like i said the hospital system she was part of is not my favorite they're like well we're first off they moved her to three different rooms she was there for three days and they moved her into three different rooms and i finally i tried to politely let them know that i thought they were crackpots because i'm like why are you moving a woman with advanced alzheimer's from one room to the other you're just asking for more problems because she's gonna get nasty and they just kind of looked at me like huh which was super irritating but then they told me they were gonna move her to a nursing home that's literally like 30 miles from here about 25 miles from here and i said oh you know you are not and this was right at the beginning of the virus when they were starting to say you know eh, going to a hospital might not be such a great idea and i'm like great my mom's in one you know i need to go and and I, I didn't go every day the four days she was there i went three because it was like i don't know if i want to be here i don't know if i want her here and I said, absolutely not. You're not putting her in a nursing home because the woman needs to go back to what's familiar or we're just going to have big problems. I go, well, she can't go back to the memory care until she's mobile. I'm like, oh, that's baloney. So fortunately, I, I knew what the, what I knew what, I had enough details of, of where mom lived that I don't know like where they got that information. I think they were just, I don't know what they were doing. But had they wanted to move her or had they needed to move her to a nursing home, what kind of things should I have known, which I still don't at this point, to consider when they said, okay, we're gonna we're gonna move her to this nursing home and it's gotta be over in this city because of the dimension, all that stuff. What kind of things should you know about a nursing home? Well, I, th I think the number one thing to do with a nursing home, and, and I actually did a, a little blog post on this at one point in time, but a lot of people don't realize that you can look up a nursing home's rating on CMS. And so you can very easily look up what deficiency they've they've had, if any, and you can start your search. I mean, the, the first thing people are going to do with a search of any kind of community or facility is it they want it as close to their home as, as likely possible. The only other time I've heard of people thinking well, in an alternative manner is that if their loved one is very social, mainly in assisted living, and they want to be in the same community that they've been living in a long time because they have a lot of friends there. But if you're looking at a nursing home, generally people are looking to be close to where they work, where they live, or somewhere in between. And so I think that's probably the, the, the first a consideration people are going to have but i think the the second one or 1a and 1b should be what cms um has has listed as deficiencies because anybody can get a deficiency not that that sounds like a good thing but it, there's a scale right like it could be a minor deficiency it could be a major deficiency so if if it was something that was was the toilet paper was not put on the right way i think we can all overlook that if it was somebody hasn't been cleaned in four and a half hours well then that might be a little bit more of an issue that you look for and then of course you know it's one of those things where it's using your own eyes and ears and and i agree with you you're own gut go and look at these 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 nursing homes get the feeling that you have of them i mean you know do you like the do you like the admissions people do you like the director of nursing do you like the individuals that you're going to be um, working with on a day-to-day -day basis 
all of these nursing homes, a lot of these assisted livings, and the same with private agency. I'm, I'm, no, I'm no special angel that doesn't deal with these problems, but the CNAs and the home health aides, are, there's a, those are high turnover jobs. So the, the aides that might be caring for your, your mom one month might be different the next month. But the question you might want to ask is, what's the turnover of the management, the director of nursing, the director of admissions, the executive director, the director of therapy? Those people, I, I know some nursing homes that have had uh, their social worker, director of social work for 20 years. I think that's a good sign versus somebody that has a new social worker every six months to 12 months. Because you're, if your mom's there for two or three years, that means that there's going to be two to three new people that are learning all the nooks and crannies that make your mom your mom. And they, that's an important thing, I think, to be able to provide proper care that you understand somebody. So that way, in private home care, my director of client care has been with me for a long time. So even if the aides change, we can still train the aides and tell the aides exactly what needs to be done so they walk into the home having a better sense of, of how to be successful. And I think that's important with a nursing home as well. And if you know, they're, if they're paying peanuts and because of that, they're getting a lot of turnover, um, then that's a, that's a problem. And so maybe 16 months or 12 months is good in the nursing home industry for the longevity of somebody on average. Maybe it's longer. It's, it's all a little bit different, but I think that would be a, a question that I would ask. So if the hospital says we're going to put your mom you know, three towns over at ABC nursing home because of X reasons, I can, well, first off, I told them no, she was going back to her memory residence. But if that wasn't an option, the memory residents couldn't take her back because she was bed bound. Am I, I don't have to take what the hospital is telling me where they want to put her, correct? Correct. You have patient choice. That's, that's, okay. that's always a, that's a very sensitive subject for me. <laughs> um, and I, I, I tell my bias about this completely, you know, as a private agency, we go into places and we try to get referrals and we try to develop relationships. And usually a very nice way people tell me to go uh, bleep off is, well, we have to give patient choice. We have to give patient choice. And it's funny how they use that until it doesn't benefit them anymore. So the nursing home that has a strong relationship with the, the, the uh, excuse me, the hospital that has a strong relationship with the nursing home, there's this quid, uh, quid pro quo that goes back and forth where if the, the hospital is referring the nursing home, the nursing home better be referring to the hospice company or the VNA company that happens to be owned by the hospital conglomerate, right? So in, in Massachusetts, we have partners and now we have Leahy. So partners in Leahy do also own hospice and VNA and all these different other um, senior care entities. So you're going to have to, if you, if that nursing home wants to continue getting referrals, well, you better be referring to my hospice company as well. Or the, ho the hospital might own their own VNA and and their own private agency. And then all of a sudden, they're trying to keep them in the umbrella of care, they call it. So you have patient choice to choose whoever you want. Um, that doesn't mean that the nursing home has to accept you. There are certain circumstances where that doesn't occur. But you have the choice to, to choose between what senior care option you have. Ideally, you know, and I know this happens a lot that you look at the social worker in the nursing home or in the hospital and say, well, if this was your mom, who would you choose, right? That's the big 
thing. And then they try to give you two or three options of people that they have a good relationship with. But at the same to on the same side, on the other side, excuse me, of that coin is that that social worker could make it their full-time second job to listen to every private agency, DME, ambulance company, hospice company, VNA, assisted living, nursing home, and everybody else that I'm not mentioning. Think about 10 reps every week from every single one of those types of senior care coming and knocking on your door and saying, can I get 15 minutes to tell you why I'm the best? And I'm one of those people and I know it's annoying and it's, it's a pain and I, I try to be brutally honest about it. So one of the problems we're finding is that these social workers are so overwhelmed with the different options that are out there, they end up putting their hands up and saying, listen, I can't, everybody says they're the best. There's a 9 million of you out there. I'm, I'm sorry, Jen, you've got to figure this out on your own because I can't do it for you anymore. And that's a real problem that we're facing right now because it's, I don't blame the social worker. I understand what stress they're under and that's a, that's a problem that they're seeing. That just sounds like another, another issue in our healthcare that we need to address. I never thought in a million years I'd be the, uh, you know, I'm the capitalistic pig, as I jokingly say to people, but I never thought I'd be asking for regulation in my industry. But it would be nice that there's some type of way that there's some hurdle you need to, to overcome, whether that's monetary, whether that's um, showing that you're a good company or somewhere in between the both of them to say, hey, listen, because at least with assisted livings and nursing home, there's a massive investment there into buying and, or converting a building into um, a proper place for people to live and to provide medical care to them if you're a nursing home. With private agencies, it's a little bit different. It's a little bit wild west in Massachusetts. It's difficult. Even with um, you know Medicare reimbursement or, or uh, Medicare reimbursement in, in Massachusetts, you still need a cer certificate for that. And that costs a lot of money. So there is that hurdle to get into. But it's it's not a perfect system by any means. And I try to be very honest about the pros and cons when it comes to using private home care. Because I think one of the issues is, is that people's expectations are way up here. And sometimes they need to be brought down in line with what is a bit more realistic and what they need to, to uh, expect from, from us. So it sounds to me, and one of the reasons I started my podcast, kind of similar to yours, coming from a different angle, is I wanted to help people understand what you need to know in the earlier stages of caregiving or if you're newly diagnosed with Alzheimer's or some form of dementia, you know, here's some of the stuff that I learned in the early, the early years. And I've been talking a lot about the later stages for quite a while, probably because that's where my mom was at. But I feel like there almost needs to be like this checklist of, okay, now you're 55 or you're 60. Here's some of the stuff you really should be doing. You know, and it's like you, the, the, you said fire hose of information that I've gotten on healthcare and all of this stuff to take care of my dad when he was on hospice and to take care of my mom these last three years. It's like, where's my degree? <laughs> you know, it's like, and it, and it literally happened overnight. We went to my parents' house to spend some time with them. My husband got there first and my dad looked at him and said, so how's the credit union business treating you? And my husband went, holy crap, I haven't been in the credit union business for 13 years. This was three and a half years ago. 
and obviously something was going on with my dad. So it was literally an instantaneous emergency. And had I known exactly what was going on with him, had he told me that he suspected the kidney was failing instead of just kind of sort of telling me, I would never have taken him to the hospital. He was in the hospital for 32 days. They kept saying, oh, we got to do some dialysis treatments and it'll clear up his memory and blah, 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 blah. And okay, after 32 days, the best he got was he knew he had a big gap. And I thought, okay, this is, this, okay, this is better than it was a month ago, but I don't know. I'm, I'm a lean pessimistic like my dad was. And then literally in three days, the guy had no clue kept asking me, how's the shop going? Cause we had a photography business together. Who's watching the shop. And it's like, Oh my God, I'm going to strangle you. I would have just called hospice from the get go, but I had no clue what was going on with him. So I got the education all at once and that's not the way you want to do it. So talk to your family members, tell them what you want. They're difficult conversations, but they're necessary. And one thing, I, and I'm not in hospice well, one thing I always try to tell people and I interject it into as much as I can is that hospice is not just for the last week or two of dying. You can go on hospice as long as your doctor says that whatever ailment, disease you have, your prognosis is less than six months to live, which means that you could be on hospice for years. And that's okay because maybe that cancer normally would be six months and it ends up being two years. And that we have, uh, I don't call them patients, we have clients that have been on hospice for years. Um, but that's something that I can't tell you how many people were like, what? Hospice? You can be on hospice for three or four months? I'm like, yes, yes. You know, I, I, I wish there were like, remember back in back in the, the early 2000s where the like the truth um, organization where all the PSAs about how bad smoking is for you. I wish there could be some PSAs about hospice and letting people know that this benefit is much longer than the five days in between, you know, when you're going to die and, and the five days before that. Um, it's important for people to know that. And that's information that a lot of people just don't know. Well, what I've been trying to do for my mom was set up palliative care, which is in between hospice and not really needing care as much. I mean, she did, but it, I knew that the care staff where she lived needed a little more help with her. It's like everybody just needed a little bit more on the team. And that's what I was trying to do. And then when she fell, that it, I was still trying to set up palliative care. And I went with the company that took care of my dad because they did a fine job. And I don't know if it was because of the whole COVID outbreak, because like I said, this was right at the beginning of all that. The gal that I talked to, we traded voicemail messages, and then she didn't call me for a week. So I ended up using the hospice company that was connected with the memory care residents that mom was in, and they did a fine job. I mean, it was only, it was less than two weeks, so <laughs> kind of hard to screw up in two weeks. And, you know, but my thought when I called, when it's like at the, at the point that I was at, it was like, we all need extra hands and eyes and help and all this stuff. So I'll just get the hospice people. And when mom graduates off a of hospice in six months, I'll just get the palliative care people. I'll have them lined up. It'll be all okay. Well, she screwed that all up. So <laughs> best laid plans. I mean, I'm, but yeah, my, Go ahead. I'm, I'm a, but I'm a big fan of those new memory. I call them assisted living 2.0s. 
Uh, I really like how there are more and more me memory care uh, only assisted livings that are going on now. I think it's a good thing. And I, I think I'm glad you had at least a, it sounds like a pretty good experience with yours overall. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, it's, it's important. Two weeks, two weeks can be a long time for hospice. And, and I've heard of a lot of screw ups that can happen in two weeks. And, you know, you're dealing with, you're dealing with human beings in, in, on both sides, the family and the, the service provider. And you're also going into what is normally the most stressful time of somebody's life. And you already have a lot of stress, high anxiety, and then you know, you sound like you're lucky. I'm an only child. I'm lucky as well in this, in this manner is that there's not a whole lot of bickering on decision-making in my family. There, there are now only two people involved in the decision-making. There were th a whopping three beforehand, but I've been in those rooms and in those conference calls when you have seven people trying to make a decision and half of them don't like what the other one because money gets involved inheritances get involved mom told me when she was demented she didn't want to go into a nursing home when she said for the 30 years before she was demented she did want to go in or whatever whatever goes on it, it, it ends up being complete cluster and you're sitting there like get me out of this room <laughs> Um, but you know, that's part of my job, right? You're just like, Oh my God. Um, and you can just feel that powder keg just getting hotter and hotter. And it's like, Oh, please let it explode after I leave. And, and so, you know, that's part of it. And so it's such a difficult scenario where, um, you know, you're dealing with mom and dad where they've, they've it's very weird. It seems like there's either this immense love for somebody or this really big animosity and, everything in between and it's just a tough scenario to be in so it's 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 really good that you had that experience because um some people feel like they didn't have that type of experience well my dad did one thing really really right i was the healthcare provider the power of attorney for both of them my sister and i are co-trustees we'll be very glad when that is all handled and resolved because we're the powder keg family even though there's the two of us, she and I do not see the world at all the same. I have no idea how we could be from the same genetics. Zero. I mean, I, I can see how she's like my mom and I was like my dad. I could see the connection, but we don't see anything. I mean, it's terrible. When my dad came, was coming out of the hospital, well, he, he came out, of, he was in the hospital for 32 days. He fell and then he went into a different hospital system. And I had already talked to hospice because I'm like, I think we might be getting closer to this than we would like to believe. And I was information gathering. That was, that's, that's my lot in life. Like I need as much information as possible so I can make the best decision possible and feel good about it. Even if it's not hundred percent right. In that decision process, I was trying to bring her onto the same page with me with mom. It was like hospice, you know, and then when she graduates from hospice, we'll go to the palliative care. I didn't even tell her that it was a hospice company. I just said we had extra help. Like she could have asked, but yeah, so I can relate. <laughs> At that point, it was like, I'm just doing what's the best for mom. And the family that doesn't always keep me in the loop, that's their problem. Keep me out of the loop. I'm just going to go and do what needs to be done. So <laughs> Yeah, it's it's not an easy position to be in, especially when you feel like there hasn't been a whole lot of uh, uh, com uh, productive communication and things like that. And 
it's 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 not, and it happens a lot more frequently than I I was very surprised. That was that was uh, an eye opener because I didn't come from that type of family. It was pretty all everybody was on the same page, and you know it wasn't a wasn't a, a too big of a, a deal. But what happened with me was that I I was living in Colorado. I I grew up in Massachusetts. I moved out to Colorado to to drink craft beer and snowboard, <laughs> and my my parents moved down to Florida like so many Massachusetts uh, retirees do. And my mom got sick with cancer, and she was unfortunately a heavy smoker, and it caught up with her. And by the time we found out about it, it was more of where it wasn't than where it was. It was everywhere. And I quit my job, and I moved down to to uh, Florida to be by her side because we, we were told eight or nine, maybe 12 months, and it ended up being four. And I think also my mom's mental, uh, my mom's my mom's outlook was a big product of how long her her cancer took i think she she um you know in my household when we ever heard somebody had stage four cancer you know it was kind of known that they was like oh my god that's not good and when hers was stage four and diagnosed i think she internalized that that i am toast this thing's this thing's i got no shot and i think that outlook um you know, she wasn't really willing to, to, to do that fight. And, and I've learned to accept that because, you know, I've never gone through cancer. I don't know what that's like. It doesn't seem like it's fun. And I think that's a pretty definitive fact about cancer. And so she didn't want to have to go through rounds and rounds of chemo and rounds and rounds of radiation. She did some radiation, um, but, you know, it, it didn't, it was, it was, it was, uh, you know, it was nothing, you know, it was, it was trying to stop an un, unstoppable force. And so, you know, it, it went quicker, but in that, during that time, I needed 24 hour home care. We needed hospice and that's how that kind of occurred. So, and that's how I got into it. And then my aunt who owned minute women ended up saying, do you want to take over the company? Do you want to buy this company from me? And I moved back up to Boston. So I did a, I did a massive triangle. And so, you know, that's, that's, you know, that's how quickly it occurred. It was, you know, we found out in, in, in basically April and she was gone by, by uh, August. So it was, it was very quick. And, but I, I talked to my dad about that too. It's like, you know what, maybe that was the lesser of the two evils. Would you rather have had Alzheimer's like that? I don't think my mom would have wanted that. And, you know, you, you were talking about some funny points. And one thing that, that I, I had a, a, a laugh with my dad when you, 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 you were talking about a family member that was, that was maybe over-medicating or you were wanting to be over-medicated. We were doing the oral medications for morphine near the end. And uh, my dad said, make, sh make sure we were, we were drawing it ourselves. And my dad goes, make sure you give her the right amount, not too much. And it was like near the end. I'm like, what's going to happen, dad? Like, what, is yeah. she going to die? You know, like, you know, and we kind of had a chuckle like, yep, that's, you know, that when you're in that scenario, you kind of find humor and maybe humorless places. But it was, you know, like, all right, so she gets an extra couple milliliters of or whatever, wow, you know, whatever it is. And she goes, Joe goes a day earlier. It's not like it's a big, big deal, because we both know that that this, uh, how this story ends. So, I mean, you, uh, everybody's experience with hospice and death is unique to themselves and the feelings that you have are unique and, and nothing, there's no wrong way to go through that for the most part. And, you know, that was my experience with it. And I look at it as, you know, my mom gave me the last gift she could. If she hadn't gotten sick and I hadn't moved down to Florida, 
I never would have been in a position to help other people and own my own business and own my own destiny. So I, I choose to look at it in that positive light then, then, uh, and, and try to be uh, positive about it as much as you can. So everybody's journey with this is, is very different. That is very true. So I just would like to end with, I mentioned that my sister and I do not see the world in the same way. And there's situations I know that my parents would have been like, really? Girls? Ugh. I mean, we're kind of going through that a little bit right now. That's why it's really important to make your wishes really known. And, and by, by wishes, I don't mean, I want to die in my own home, because that isn't always feasible. You know, my dad did. We paid for 24-hour caregivers, which is a lot of money. And then mom was in memory care, which is also a lot of money, but not quite as much as 24-hour home care. And everything else we had to figure out, you know, my sister and I and our, our husbands and, you know, we just, you know, we kind of like scrambled around trying to figure out what's, you know, what's the best thing to do in this panic situation and, you know, holy Toledo, now what? And it's just, you know, is that really what you want to do to your family? No, I will answer that question for you. No, you don't have the conversations and do them early. I mean, I'm, like I said, I'm 53. We've had this conversation for three years or more with my husband and my daughter. They know exactly what I want. And until recently, my husband didn't think he could, he could do the, the permanent night-night pill. And there are countries in the world where that is a little more doable. And we're supposed to go to one in a convention next year, so that's a little scary. <laughs> but he didn't think he could do that until the day that my mom called him an, an asshole and scratched him and drew blood and was just an absolute horrific pain in the butt. And he looked at me and he goes, that pack you wanted, you're on. And I was like, ooh, that sounds like a threat. <laughs> So and and the and I, I agree with you. The earlier you can have that conversation, the less scary it is because you can you can. And I think in as humans and in in we internalize it like, oh well, that's still so far away, right? You know, everybody's thinking they're going to die at eighty, ninety, or hundred years old. Well, not everybody makes it that far. Um, so I think it's a little bit easier than when maybe somebody's had a major fall and they're in the hospital and you're like, well, you know you know, mom, there's a chance you could die in the next three weeks. What do you want to do? That's kind of an emotional yeah. time and a stressful time to start having the conversation of things. So I, I would think so. And then you can revisit it every year or two years and say, has anything changed? You know, you can always rip up your five wishes or you can always rip up the, the plans that you have and make new plans. They're not etched in stone by any means. That is very true. Well, we made it to the end of another episode. Sorry this one got a little bit long. Ryan and I could have talked for hours. Be sure to check out his podcast, The Caregiver's Toolbox. Check out my completely revamped website. Follow me on social media. Ratings, reviews, all the good things. You know what to do. And as always, I'll be in your ears again next Tuesday.